Morning. It's good to be back with you guys. I don't know if you've had COVID yet, but we got it. And we're alive, so that's good news. Really thankful to God. The, I think I had COVID early in 2020 before we knew what COVID was. It's like the sickest I've been in a really, really long time. Uh, thankfully, this time, not as bad symptoms. So I want to say thank you to you guys for your prayers and concerns for my family and for me. Uh, certainly, we've noticed a lot of you guys have been out at different points, and it's probably a matter of time, it seems like. If you haven't been hit that with that yet, it's coming. Uh, but we're really thankful to God that he healed our family and uh, that we're good to go. So uh, if you were here last week, you'll recall that there was no sermon in the sense that we're used to. And that was a Saturday afternoon decision for us based on my symptoms and, and what we felt like was appropriate as far as potentially me getting up here and just shotgunning germs at you guys for 40 minutes. Didn't seem like a good idea uh, given the circumstances. So I appreciate you bearing with us and being willing to pivot, to, to receive a curveball and to kind of go a different direction. Um, instead of a sermon, if you weren't here last week, I'll fill you in a little bit, we just read scripture. Now, that's not all we did at this campus, but that was the one thing that we did at both campuses. At East, we had an additional prayer time, and here, obviously, you got to hear Eric Godden's testimony, which I was able to watch online, but would have loved to have been in the room for. Uh, Eric's story is so incredible, and he has a great testimony of finding the Lord uh, by way of God's word and by prayer, personal connection to him. But this was interesting to me. Um, wasn't in the office Monday, needed to stay quarantined, but beginning Tuesday, I was back in the office checking email, texting people, and uh, I have never in three plus years of preaching almost every Sunday here and then, you know, a smattering of preaching before that in other contexts, I've never received as much feedback as I did about last Sunday from you guys. Uh, some people felt like it was amazing, it was refreshing to just hear God's word read aloud, to just let it land and sit among us and for us to have to grapple with it, though we've asked you, I've asked you to be reading along as we go, I suspect that for some of you that may have been the first time that you've heard those four chapters of the Bible, Exodus 21 through 24, all read all together in their original context. Obviously, when they were written, there were no chapters and verses, so it was just one long list of things to do and not do. Um, in addition to those who were refreshed, it seemed like some were a little confused, maybe, this is not the easiest passage. It's not like we just opened up to John 3 and heard Jesus lay out the gospel for us. There's a lot of nuance to a lot of the laws that we encountered last week. And I heard from at least one person that they just didn't get it. They came, they thought, ah, I probably could have stayed home and I think I would have gotten just as much out of it. Which, in some ways to me, is almost too ironic. When I, when I spoke to that person and heard that they had talked to other people and received the same perspective, I felt like surely they were joking or maybe they were even just a plant that somebody had put in so that I could make a point today, but they weren't. It's the way that it went. If you remember to two weeks ago, the big point, the big landing place for all of us was the idea that as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we should consult with the law. We should consider it. We should think about what it means and we should try to draw out of it as much as we can about God's character but we are not supposed to submit to it. Not in the sense that we really even have a choice. In fact, because our allegiance is to Jesus, we should not choose to live under the weight of the law as our religious system. So as New Covenant disciples, that means that the first half of that idea lands for you and I that we should be considering the law. And so last week, that's what we did, right? For 15 minutes, unless your mind immediately went to your grocery list in your head, you considered the law. You considered what it meant. You may have interacted with it in a way that you felt was offensive, potentially, maybe embarrassing. I know a lot of the law that was in those chapters that we read, similar to what Nick read this morning, has to do with slavery, an idea that none of us really wants to interact with or encounter. 
Here's what I think may have gotten lost on some of us. And I want to be clear. This is not an indictment against anybody who read Scripture or anybody who helped lead the service. This isn't even really an indictment on those of you who participated from the chairs. It's more so an observation that then tells me and informs what I need to do today. I think that maybe we don't actually expect hearing God's Word to do anything. Maybe the model of discipleship that you've grown up underneath is so oriented around you being the one to do and go and tell and say and memorize and try and work that you've begun to forget that this isn't just a book like other books are just a book. The concepts, the ideas, the truth, the words themselves are inspired by the God who made everything that we see. And I think for you and I, maybe sometimes we don't really think just hearing God's word will change us. You probably know, because it's the same way that we keep track of our secular calendar, that the church of Jesus has existed on the face of this planet for, give or take, 2,000 years. And in that time, the first 16 or 1,700 years of the life of that church, the public reading of Scripture was a really common practice. That may sound boring to you. You may be grateful that you were born in the mid-1900s through 2000s, that you don't have to endure that, but it was typical. For hours at a time, sometimes whole Gospels would be read before the people. Now, typically in a Catholic context, especially pre-printing press, this was a little bit harder to connect with because it was typically read in Latin to people who did not speak Latin. But especially in the context of post-Reformation, when people have been able to understand the words that were being read to them, it was normal, it was typical. And in a way, I think it, it really closely mirrors one of the best practices of Jesus, which was simply teaching, speaking the truth, explaining his perspective, telling us what is good and what is not good, because If you've lived as long as I have, you know that your own personal radar is not reliable. You can't figure those things out on your own. But when we come to verses like we did last week, like we're going to touch on today, especially verses that deal with sojourners, which isn't even a word that we use, or slave laws, or especially the laws about what happens when your cows kill your neighbors, not terribly practical for most of us, they don't really seem like they have anything to do with us, but, but that's not the case, and we know that because of what Jesus said. I told you this two weeks ago. We touched on it briefly the week before that. I'll continue to say this to you every week that we're in the Old Testament law. According to Jesus himself, the summary, the total that you get if you add all these laws together into the life of a human being is a lived love for God. It's the application of yourself to your relationship with God. And then as a subset, as sort of a response to that, As you're filled with God's love, as that relationship that's vertical gets right and begins to function as God intends it to, then your horizontal relationships are impacted. That's the other thing that Jesus said that these laws have to do with, is they inform how and how often and why we love God, but then they also inform those same things for other people around us. And so they are less supposed to be handcuffs to keep all of our cows on our property, and they're more supposed to be teaching to inform the perspective that we have about how we should anticipate accidents. Who is responsible when something happened that no one anticipated? What happens if it is premeditated? What happens if it's not? And what does that teach us about our heart, and what does it teach us about God's standard of justice? So to that end, and you can call me obstinate or cranky, whatever word you want to use, I want to double down on this. Instead of weaving through these chapters, which is easy to do, and highlighting easy-to-understand laws about protecting the innocent and extending grace to the needy, today we are going to talk about slave laws. That's why Nick read what he read. Probably some of the most offensive, if not potentially the most embarrassing laws in the Old Testament because of our common misunderstanding about what God does and does not condone. We're going to dig into those things. And here is my guarantee to you. 
By the time we're done today, you will better understand who you are in Christ. So we're going to get to Jesus. And you'll also know God the Father better than you do. I think you'll actually realize that the common misconception that God in the Old Testament is angry and God in the New Testament is not is inaccurate, that God has been the same the whole time. And we'll see that highlighted in his laws, and then we'll connect those laws to the teachings of Jesus. So to that end, we should get moving. If you have a copy of God's word, I want to reread what you heard Nick read, Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. I'll make a few highlights as we go. If you're in your scripture journal, we are roughly halfway through today. And if you don't have one of those and you'd like one to be taking notes, just a reminder to you that we have some available at the Connect table. You feel free to grab one of those whenever you want. Here's what God says to Moses. This is Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. These are the rules that you, Moses, will set before them, the people of Israel. When you buy a Hebrew slave, so there's that word for the first time, here's what that slave will do. He will serve for six years. And then in the seventh year, that slave will become free, and he will become free for nothing. There will be no cost to his freedom. There will be no price to his emancipation. Verse 3, if he comes in as a slave, single, unmarried, then he will go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife will also go out with him. Again, God is preserving boundaries here. If you have a family, it's not threatened by your slavery. If you don't have a family, you will return to the status that you entered into your slave contract with. If the master gives the man, the slave, a wife, and she bears the man sons or daughters, then the wife and her children shall stay with the master, and the slave shall go back out alone. But, and I think this must have been pretty common for God to put this into law for his people, if the slave plainly says, which means honestly, not deceitfully, not to be manipulative, but honestly has love in his heart, he says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will choose, my will is to not go out free. Then, here's what you do. The master brings the man first to God, the slave, then brings him from God to the doorpost of the household. The reason that matters is this is the place that the slave has gone in and out of all of these years of service. At that point, God says, the master will grab the earlobe or the the top of the ear. We have some common piercings that match these same locations and bore it through with an awl. Uh, not a great way to get your ear pierced. We're not talking Claire's in the mall with a nice sharp tool. This thing's relatively blunt, might not be that clean, but that's the marker that you're going to receive. There's going to be a notch out of your ear so that everywhere that you go, people will know you already belong to a household. Why does that matter? So that you don't sell yourself into slavery for multiple people. You don't try to manipulate the system. And he shall be his slave forever. Forever. Slave. Not an easy word even for me to say, to be honest with you makes me flinch a little bit. Certainly not an easy word for us to hear. If you're a visual learner like me, when you hear the word slave, your mind pictures horrifying images of men and women shipped on boats from Africa to the Caribbean and the South Atlantic, the British colonies, finally the fledgling United States. Over the history and the the totality of the slave trade, roughly we can estimate 12 million people were displaced were moved against their will from their home to a place where they would become not just labor, but property. The transatlantic slave trade at its peak, this is about 1778, was moving roughly 52,000 people a year. And if that number feels too hard for you to comprehend, it does for me, it helps me to think of it in these terms, break that down by 365 days a year, and you're dealing with the arrival of 142 new slaves every day. The BBC, 
2007, reported that more than a million Africans died at sea, just at sea, not even once they arrived and were beaten to death on plantations or died in the baking sun or were refused food or water as punishment. Just in the journey, a million people died. And one of the very best and honestly most excruciating books that I'm aware of uh, that deals with the connection between the global rise of capitalism, which is what fueled the slave trade, it's a book called Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route by Sadia Hartman, and she says this in her book. I want the gravity of this to land on you. She says, death was not a goal of its own, but it was a byproduct of commerce, which has the lasting effect. Here's what that does. When you think of it in terms of commerce, which is the way people thought of it then, it has the lasting effect of making negligible all of the millions of lives lost. Incidental death occurs when life has no normative value, when no humans are actually involved, when the population is, in effect, seen or considered as already dead. She goes on to say that the reason that the death toll of the slave trade never became offensive to its contemporaries in the same way that the Russian gulags or the Nazi concentration camps of the 1930s and 40s did was because the death of the slaves wasn't the point. It was considered by people of that day a necessary part of the exponential expansion of global trade and the commoditization of tropical crops like cotton and sugarcane that could not be grown by people in Europe. It's incomprehensible. I mean, truly, when I, when I begin to think about this, a part of my mind and my spirit sort of just freezes up. Like, I, I can't grapple with this. I can't comprehend it. It's chilling to me, it's shocking, and, and the reason I'm laying this out for you, you're probably asking yourself, what does this have to do with anything, is because the real question in the room today, when we encounter slave laws, the question that we're trying to answer is, when Yahweh speaks about slavery and Exodus, is he talking about that? Is that okay with him? Is God pro the kidnapping and theft of human beings? Is God pro a million plus lost in transit considered collateral damage like an Amazon box that falls off a conveyor belt? Right? I mean, that's why it's embarrassing, isn't it? Because we bring this loaded perspective, and it's not wrong of us to do that. We have to consider the history that we know. But here is my answer, and then I will demonstrate to you from Scripture how I know this to be true. Unequivocally, no. This is not what Yahweh is in favor of. In fact, it has almost nothing to do, the transatlantic slave trade has almost nothing to do with the Hebrew concept of slavery. And you could just trust me and believe that, but I believe as we look into God's word, we can understand that for ourselves. So I can say, no, God was not in favor of the transatlantic slave trade, not at any point. Neither would he, of course, been in favor of the gulags, the concentration camps, modern sex slavery, the Uyghur genocide in China. None of those things are things that God is pro because they are wholesale rejections of what we call the imago Dei, the image of God, the, the inherent human dignity of a person. God can never be in favor of these things. Now, to come back to the Bible, when we arrive in Hebrews, excuse me, in Exodus 21, the word slave in Hebrew is ebed. It's pretty easy to say, considering how hard some Hebrew words are to say. Ebed is actually pretty challenging to translate. In the New American Standard Bible, which is sort of a, a little bit older than the ESV translation, and sometimes scholars trust it a little bit more, though I'm, I prefer the ESV, obviously. In the New American Standard Version, the translation of Ebed is, I think, close to 850 times translated as servant or servants. Only 50 times in the Old Testament is it translated as slave. And the reason for that is the word Ebed brings with it all kinds of degrees of nuanced economic and social meaning. It does not simply mean the 
chattel-style, dehumanization-style of transatlantic slave trade that you and I are familiar with. It involves all kinds of transactional agreements. It involves the will of the person who puts themselves into slavery. In Israelite culture, a person who had no goods really had no opportunities in their life. I want you to just think about that for a minute. There's no bank. There's no savings and loan. If you receive an inheritance, it's substance, it's things, it's land or it's flocks or it's servants who are particularly loyal, who have a skill set, or it's crops of things that can be cut down, harvested, and turned into clothing or food. If you don't have that stuff, if something happened to your family back in the chain of your family tree and you've lost your ability to gain those things, you have no grounds to get more. We're not talking about Alaskan homesteading here. As God's people move, especially at this stage of their life, the things that they have with them are all that they have. They have not settled yet, and there is not new land to be settled. And so to that end, if you are a man like me, who has a wife, a relatively young marriage, a young daughter, and you need to provide for your people, yet you have no goods, you never learned a trade, and you don't have anything you can give to anybody in exchange for the food and clothing that your family needs or the shelter, you trade yourself. That's the baseline concept in play here. And though I have no interest in belittling some of the potential cruelty that can come along when you sell yourself over to another person, a helpful modern parallel to understand what we're dealing with in this sort of contractual negotiation of slavery in the Hebrew world is to consider in the modern day how we handle pro-athletes. A professional athlete typically is drafted, regardless of what sport you follow, hockey, baseball, football, basketball, whatever. In the draft, what's happening is a player is saying, I believe I have a certain level of skill. Other experts have assessed me. They have agreed that I have that level of skill. I've demonstrated that skill on a field of some kind, in games of which we have footage. And now, I'm expecting to receive payment in advance for my ability to contribute my work to this team. That's what's going on in Hebrew slavery. That's why the NASB translates it as servant more often than slave, though servant implies employment in the sense that's not contractual, which is why we can't really land on a definition here. If we only use the word servant, then we're implying that a person can get fed up one day and walk away, but the contract of slavery in the Old Testament, similar to a modern sports contract, is binding. For instance, if I don't own any banana trees, but I'm really good at growing and harvesting banana trees, I might go to a person who has banana trees but has no skill and say, I have no money, I have no clothing, I have a family with an obligation and responsibility to them. I will commit to you. I will sell all of my banana growing ability to you for the next six years. In exchange for that, I expect a guarantee that you will treat me like I belong to you, like I'm part of your household, part of your family. That doesn't mean I receive an inheritance but it also doesn't compromise the rights that I have. In fact, and this is the nuance that is so lost on us because we live in such a legally codified culture, prior to this instance in the Old Testament, there is no legal category for a slave. Maybe that doesn't matter to you. If you were a slave, it would, because what it would mean is without this codification of what slavery is and is not, what is fair and not fair, you had no legal standing. You could be oppressed. You could be taken advantage of. You could be murdered simply because it made your master feel good. This was the state of slavery in Egypt. You know this context. It was horrifying for God's people. Yet now, our God is describing a kind of slavery, according to verse 6, in which it is possible for a man to actually love his master. That's not an exaggeration. And it isn't gaslighting. It's not Stockholm Syndrome. It's a true position on the heart of a person who's been treated right because slavery in the Hebrew Old Testament does not require you to surrender your humanity. In fact, it protects your humanity. 
It gives you grounds to appeal to a court of law, a man like Moses or the men that he established in Exodus chapter 11, excuse me, uh, 18, where he defined what was right and wrong and came before God and figured out what was what. That's why part of the permanence process is bringing the slave before God. You stand master and slave in God's presence and say, we commit to do right by each other. That is significant. And that has nothing to do with the process of the transatlantic slave trade. If you and I could consider ourselves to be able to take a mortgage out on our own life, that may be another helpful way to think about this. In a mortgage, you live in a house that doesn't technically belong to you. It belongs to a bank or a credit union, and you pay those people to live there until finally you pay for the value of the house, and then it is yours, at which point you might consider yourself free from your mortgage. I would celebrate it that way if I were you. It's significant. In the life of a Hebrew slave, you are taking out a mortgage on yourself. You are the collateral. You are saying, I would like to live a life that I cannot afford. It's not a credit-based system because you're working for it the whole time. You're liable for it the whole time, and there's no interest. God clarifies that later in his law. But God lays out a plan for you to be able to exchange your ability in return for a life that you can't provide yourself, a life which is itself the bare minimum of the human standard for living. To go back to the concept of African slavery, the hundreds of years of abuse— I hate to even say this, but it's true. The, the, the breeding of humans like animals, the refusal to acknowledge the beauty and dignity of the millions of slaves who lived and died on plantations in the South, it's nothing like what God describes and condones in his law. In one sense, translating the word ebed as slave is accurate and helpful because it helps us understand the, the gravity and the permanence, in a sense, the contractual element of Hebrew slavery, but on the other hand, you and I cannot and should not interact with the concept of slavery without also grappling with our national history. And I think one key to the kind of slavery that Yahweh allows in Exodus is that no one can ever capture someone else and make them a slave. And so I just want to lean into, if you've heard this in the past, there were many, many people who were slaveholders in the American South who were regular church attenders, would have claimed Christ verbally. I feel sure that many of them were actually saved Christians whom God had given grace to, but who would have said not only does the Bible allow the version of slavery that they participate in, their misinformation would have led them to believe wholeheartedly that it actually endorsed the version of slavery that they participated in. And here is why I know that's not the case. Here is why it is good and right and healthy for you and I to separate ourselves from that mindset and to be sure that we never return to it. In Exodus 21, 16, God says this, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone who is found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's all you need to know about the cognitive dissonance in the minds of slaveholders in the southern U.S. That was not a verse they must have preached very much. Because all of the transatlantic slave trade is predicated on kidnapping. Man-stealing, if you will. You want to use the KJV version of the word. It's a better, clearer picture, in my opinion. There was no slave bought or sold in the transatlantic system who could not trace the legacy of their slavery back to an instance of kidnapping. So the origin defines to us what God thinks of that kind of thing and makes us comfortably able to explore his law without the embarrassment of sensing that God is asking us to do a thing which is very clearly against his character, which is why I gave you the principle I gave you two weeks ago. We don't submit to these laws in letter. We shouldn't try to. We don't understand what they mean. We don't live when these people lived. But we must consult with them. We must try to understand not the letter of the thing and the do and the don't, but the heart of it and what it says about our God. 
What these laws communicate to us is that God would never be in favor of the dehumanization of any person anywhere to the point that if you participate in that willingly in this instance, his expectation is that other people would kill you. That's the right response if they find out that you are a person who steals and sells other people. Slavery could be the result of a person making the exchange of years of their life with a master, but it could also happen as a punishment for uh, for theft, etc. So I want to read again from Exodus 22 now, verses 1 through 4. You've got a little more context here. God says if a man steals an ox or if he steals a sheep and then tries to kill it, which he would only kill it to eat the meat or use the hide or to sell it. So in other words, if someone profits off of their theft, then they must pay back five times what they stole if it's an ox or four times what they stole if it's a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. Verse 3, but if the sun has risen then there shall be blood guilt for him, and he shall surely pay. But if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now, you and I are tempted to read cruelty into that passage, right? We read that and we go, sold into slavery. Why? So he can be beaten every day and hung in the stocks like in colonial America. But that's not really a fair reading. What God is doing is putting a person in a position of penalty in a culture without prisons or jails or any kind of penal system that actually protects their human dignity while also causing them to pay for the wrong that they've done. That is the absolute best version of justice anybody could ever ask for. Unfortunately, we typically have to compromise. We either refuse to act justice out because we don't know how to do it without being cruel and compromising someone's humanity, or we accept a version of justice that dehumanizes the criminal. God has a better plan. Can you see how sharp God is? How much better he is at this than we and, I, and you and I are in 2022? These laws are good laws. Our laws stink compared to this. We spend a lot of time arguing with each other about nuance when God has said plainly, protect the humanity of the individual and pursue justice in their life. Do the best that you can. What if there's a situation where this applies? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, this seems so abstract. I don't care about this at all. I'll just try to come with me here. What if I'm rich and you're not? which, trust me, is not the case. But if that was the case, right, maybe that's a story we can imagine for a minute. If I'm rich and you're not, I have a lot of fields, you have a little field, I have a lot of sheep, you have just a few sheep. But what if I decide I really could use your piece of land? I know it's not a lot, but you don't really get a lot out of it. And honestly, it would serve the national economy far better if it was in my possession. I wouldn't know what to do with it. I've got the workers to work it. I've got the sheep to eat the grass. It would be better. Well, I have two options, don't I? I can go to you and attempt to purchase it at a fair price. And I can do that in a way that's upfront, that's objective, that's not hiding anything, that's not trying to be deceitful in any way, or I can find a way to manipulate you, but I'll have to do that legally. I'll have to find a loophole. I'll have to find a way to either get somebody to testify against you wrongly, or I might even be able to frame you. What if I sneak onto your land with my sheep and I sprinkle them all among your flock and maybe I even kill one with a club and then I leave and then I show up at dawn with all the village elders and I say, see, he took my sheep and he even killed one. What hope do you have? It's my word against yours. I'm the big guy. I've got deep pockets. I'm going to influence the law. What hope do you have in a situation like that? Well, God answers that scenario. In Exodus 23, verses 6 through 9, he says this. He says, you will not pervert the justice that is due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe. Because here's what a bribe does. It blinds the clear-sighted and it subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Now, hopefully, you noticed a difference there. 
Previously, we talked about how if you steal a person and you try to sell them, you have to be killed by your peers. But what did God just say is going to happen if you testify wrongly in court to gain an advantage over someone who has less than you? Not exactly the death penalty, but in a way it's worse. God doesn't even waste his breath explaining that someone who cheats in court should be killed by their peers because what he knows is when you cheat in court, nobody knows you cheated in court. You get away with it. So who's the only person left in the universe who can hold you accountable in a situation like that? It's God himself. He doesn't delegate this dispensation of righteousness and justice on your life. He says, I will not acquit the wicked. In other words, you do a public-facing crime knowing full well what's coming for you if you get caught. There's a penalty you need to know about in advance, and it's going to happen at the hands of the other people in this tribe. But if you sneak and lie and cheat and you find a way to deceive and manipulate the legal system to gain an advantage over anybody else economically, if you sell bribes, if you take bribes, that's my business. Now it's personal to me. And you can see here, God is at the same time teaching his people like we said that he would. He's handing them some responsibility, but he maintains that ultimate judgment of the inner person belongs to him. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus said over and over again. He instructed us on how to act with the poor, how to treat the needy, how to respond to our enemies, and then he came after our hearts. And he said, you've heard it said, it's only about actions. I'm not saying that. Actions matter, but the heart that motivates those actions is as important, and I can see it, and God can see it. God is saying the same thing here. Physical death from your peers as a punishment for kidnapping is bad. Spiritual death from Yahweh as a punishment for abusing the poor is worse than that. Can you feel now how well God knows humanity from the way that these laws are worded? How razor sharp his understanding of the human heart and our needs actually is. And can you also see how loving God with all of yourself, which is what Jesus said was the point of these laws, is the natural conclusion. If you are the rich person, God removes your agenda from you. He he takes away a clear and present temptation for you to manipulate and use your power for evil by giving you a clear and well-known penalty. And if you're poor and you're more likely to be oppressed, God sets up a system in which even if you feel that you're being cheated in court, you know that God will not acquit the wicked, even if he gets away with it. Fairness, justice, but also the return of humanity to humans, the dignity of being a person, the opportunity to love a God who sees behind all the veils and curtains, behind all the smoke screens and mirrors, and does what is right and maintains the records that there will always be justice. So I would argue that God's laws about slavery are not irrelevant to us, that they're not embarrassing at all. In fact, they teach us principles that had our ancestors in the 15 and 1600s actually taken seriously, had they intended to truly walk with Jesus and take his word at its word, probably would have ended the transatlantic slave trade. In fact, that is the story of the end of the transatlantic slave trade, is believers convicted by God's word pushing back against an economic system that wasn't done with slavery yet. It's not that this thing ran its course, and then at the end everybody went, ah, we really should have figured out a way to do that differently. In the middle of enormous economic booms, the midst of the edge of industrialization on a global scale, Christians stood up and said, this cannot happen anymore. It's done. It does not work. It is not God's will. It is abhorrent for any law anywhere to encode rules for how we can take another person's life and get away with it. Horrifying. God's acknowledgement of the poor and the needy is not only spiritually significant for you and I, it instructs us physically. To become a little more application-oriented with you here, when God describes the possibility of a person of wealth manipulating someone who doesn't have that wealth, he's not just speaking to that specific legal situation. He's talking to our hearts. 
God removes our blatant disregard for human dignity, like the transatlantic slave trade, but he also clarifies that even when we've deceived everybody else, God still knows our heart's motivations. Even if we, to give you an example, have learned to cleverly disguise our disdain for other people, God knows. In 2022, maybe that's less the slave and more the homeless. Maybe that's less the person with a different skin color and more the person who has an addiction that we don't understand. It's possible it could be somebody who's claimed a transgender identity or who participates in a sexual lifestyle that's, that's offensive to you and I. There are times and places where we can begin to look down on a person in the sense that communicates disdain and judgment upon them instead of still speaking the truth, right? God doesn't compromise his law, but doing it in a way that is winsome, that is kind, that seeks the good and the best of the other. And that means we have to be okay with the friction of telling somebody God knows better than them about what's best for them. I'm not dodging that here. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what is our hope? Is our hope to prove people wrong so that maybe eventually they'll find what's right? Or can we start with that part? Can we extend as an understanding of the concepts that undergird God's law, a willingness to defend and stand up for the humanity of anybody? In 2022, those battles look like those who are born or not yet, those who are imprisoned or not yet. There's still a modern version of sex trafficking. We have a Super Bowl coming up in just a few weeks. You may not know this. Every year when the Super Bowl goes to a new city in America, that city becomes the most prolific sex slave hub for the week before and after the Super Bowl. It's a reality. The police know this. They plan for it. They work around it. National and international organizations plan to try to set those people free. Yet some of us, maybe, have such disdain for that world that we haven't even thought about whether there's a role for us to play. We've never even prayed that God would do that work, that he would set those people free and do his will. Now to bring it home today, I want to remind you we consider the law. I've tried to be clear today that the law is not looming over us. It's informing how we bring love into the world. That's what Jesus said. Love for God, love for people. So we consider it, but we don't submit to it because we're under a new covenant. And I'll just finish with Paul's words in Romans 6. He starts by interacting with the law and then brings us into new life in Jesus, and he says this. He says, what then shall we do? Which you need to read the first six chapters of Romans if you understand what he means by what then. Don't have time today. Read it this afternoon to be good for you. He says, in light of these things, I'll just give you a spoiler, the grace of God. In light of the grace of God, are we supposed to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Absolutely not, he says. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, then you become a slave of the one whom you obey? And this can be sin, which leads to death, or it can be obedience, which leads to righteousness, life. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, Pharisees, you knew how to keep the law on the outside, but your hearts were slave to sin. Now your inner person matches your outer person. You worked so hard to live righteously. Now you've been made a person not who just does good, but is good. What a miracle. And having been set free from sin, now you are slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, as slaves to lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, and that will lead you into sanctification, consecration, holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Think about that. You were free from righteousness? 
That sounds kind of good, right? If the law is oppressive and all God wants to do is handcuff us and keep us from having any fun, then great, that's what we want, right? But Paul says this, he says, what fruit were you getting? Don't you realize everything you touched crumbled and died? Was that better than this? The things of which you're now ashamed, that's what you were dedicated to. For all those things bring you to at the end is death. But now, now that you've been set free from sin, now you become slaves of God. And the fruit that you get now leads to sanctification and its end, which is life eternal. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now hopefully those verses sounded different to you today than they have previously. Hopefully now you understand that Paul's idea of slavery doesn't echo the transatlantic slave trade idea of slavery. It echoes God's idea of slavery, Yahweh's definition of slavery. Just like we established two weeks ago, we're not under the law as Israel was, but we have a new covenant now in Jesus' blood with expanded and updated terms based on his grace and mercy. That's why we don't need a formal code of laws to govern our behaviors. We have the indwelt spirit of Jesus who is a law to us in our inner person if we are, to use Jesus' words in John 3, born again. So instead of slavery to righteousness or Jesus being the dehumanization of whole and free people, Paul understands our slavery to righteousness to actually be freedom. We are emancipated by moving our loyalty to the correct master. In the same way that the Old Testament slave laws created a legal category for slaves and then protected those slaves' rights, the New Testament law of righteousness The Holy Spirit of God creates a new legal category for us, you and I, and protects us from sin and self-destruction. So I hope I kept my promise to you. Three things I hope you caught along the way today. If, If you didn't, you can write these down quickly. First is this, that God is just. He never agrees with the abuse or oppression of any person. This is true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. He doesn't change. His law has proven that to us today. And this is why Jesus set women free from slavery to society, from slavery to their own inner demons in both John 4 at the well in Samaria and John 8 at God's temple in Jerusalem. It's not a new idea from Jesus. God's always been setting slaves free, letting them go from their sin, letting them go from their wickedness, letting them go from their cruel masters who would abuse and use them. Second, more than external righteousness, God desires internal renewal for us. Not that we would become people who do good, but that we become people who are good. This is the root of Jesus' indictments against the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23. The same way that God goes after the deceitful, wicked heart of someone who would manipulate a poor person in a court of law, that's a physical reality. Jesus goes after the hearts of the religious who have used all of God's law to manipulate and abuse the oppressed. That's a spiritual reality. Not a new teaching, not a new concept, just Jesus bringing God's law to bear on real people in real time. Finally, freedom from slavery has always been God's plan. This is why God set all of the slaves free every seventh year. Don't miss that part. That's the normal rhythm of slavery. A sabbatical, a Sabbath year, a year of jubilee, when debts were forgiven and people who had sold themselves were given back the opportunity to go a new way, hopefully with a better position than they entered into their slavery with. Night and day difference from what it means to actually own another person and use and abuse them as subhuman. And this is why through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are set free from sin, which is our old master. God has always been setting people free. But then we willingly sell ourselves back to Jesus, just like Exodus 21, 6, because we found a master who we love. And so we say to him, I'll stay. 
I'll stay and I'll stay and I'll stay and I'll go to the temple with you and stand before the Father and I'll go to the doorway of the house and have my ear marked. That boring of a hole with an all, that's your baptism, new covenant believer. That's your chance to say to the world, I found my master. My will is not mine anymore. My life does not belong to me. I willingly submit to the will of another forever. And it's the best decision that I've ever made. So that's what I hope will be true for you. I hope that as you continue to pour over these chapters of law, the scriptures, next week we're jumping into all of the temple furnishings, a lampstand. I'm going to preach to you about a lampstand next week. And you know what it's going to tell us? That God is for us and Jesus is real. I can't wait to go there with you. But every week, may we be people who consider Yahweh's law, yet only submit to Jesus. May we be sure that the law does not become a master for whom we are willing to bore a hole in our ear, but only Christ holds our allegiance forever. And through the law of the Spirit of God within us, may we all find, as Paul described it, real and true freedom. That's what the law does. It does not condemn us to death. It gives us a chance to understand God that through Christ we might enter into life. I'd like to pray that for you. We get the chance, God, today to be in your word and to have a chance to maybe understand parts of it better that are pretty challenging, relatively obtuse. I hope, God, today that I've done an okay job. I pray grace and mercy for us, Father, for those of us who have a natural tendency to lean into the law that we would understand it has a position in our lives, but that position is not master. It's instructor. I pray that we would receive its instruction, God, that, that you would teach us to be kind and gracious to each other that we would seek to do your will, that we would stand up for the poor, the abused, the oppressed, that we would never turn a blind eye. And God, especially, especially, that you would rip away any false idol we have of you in the Old Testament as angry or belligerent or unkind, and that you would reveal your character throughout all of Scripture to us. Teach us that you are good, God. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.